Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Pains me. Pains many other survivors who survived because... We have been decoding our painful story to tell the world as a warning about the danger of nuclear weapons. I want the world to wake up to the reality of this totally unacceptable reality. And I hope more people would stand up and say, we're not going to take this nonsense anymore. The G7 meeting in Hiroshima, Japan, has wrapped as the United States and its allies pledge more military support for Ukraine, including U.S. training on F-16 fighter jets. But G7 leaders failed to make progress on nuclear disarmament. We'll speak to a survivor of the 1945 U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Then the NAACP issues a formal travel advisory for Florida, saying the state under Governor Ron DeSantis has become, quote, hostile to black Americans. Meanwhile, PEN America and Penguin Random House have sued a Florida school board for banning books. We'll speak to the head of PEN America, Suzanne Nossel, and Professor Kelly Carter Jackson distracted by the things that Ron DeSantis is trying to do. He is trying to steal our joy, to make us feel bad about being Black. But we are not tragically colored. Plus, we go to Ecuador, where President Guillermo Lasso has dissolved parliament in order to avoid being impeached. We'll speak to former Ecuadorian presidential candidate Andres Arauz. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukraine's military says its forces still control parts of Bakhmut and are trying to encircle the decimated eastern city, following claims by Wagner Group mercenaries they fully captured Bakhmut after months of bloody battles. Wagner says its forces will depart the city starting Thursday through June 1st, leaving Bakhmut to Russia's military. Over the weekend, President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared at the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan, where he said photos of Hiroshima after the 1945 atomic bombing by the U.S. reminded him of present-day Bakhmut. Zelensky also met with President Biden in Japan Sunday as Biden announced another $375 million in military aid to Ukraine. In a reversal, Biden said he'll now support training Ukrainian pilots on U.S.-made F-16 jets. It's not clear who would provide the jets, though Moscow already warned of enormous risks if Ukraine started using F-16s in combat. Biden said he received assurances the fighter jets would not be used by Ukraine over Russian territory. 
Earlier today, Russian shelling again knocked out power to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, forcing it to rely on backup diesel generators to prevent a nuclear disaster. The International Atomic Energy Agency warns the plant remains extremely vulnerable. In Greece, the conservative prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, celebrated after his new democracy party won over 40 percent of seats in Sunday's parliamentary elections, though he called for a second round to ensure an outright victory rather than forming a coalition government. The leftist Syriza party, which came to power on an anti-austerity platform in 2015, won just 20 percent of seats, while a progressive party led by former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis failed to qualify for parliament. Mitsotakis, who came to power in 2019, ran on an anti-immigrant platform and touted his government's efforts to slow the arrival of asylum seekers on Greek shores. The New York Times reports a dozen asylum seekers from the Horn of Africa who arrived on the Greek island of Lesbos last month were rounded up and abandoned at sea in a clear violation of Greek and international law. Video filmed on April 11th shows Greek authorities locking the migrants inside an unmarked van, transferring them onto a Greek Coast Guard ship and stranding them in the middle of the Aegean Sea. A six-month-old baby was among those left adrift in an emergency inflatable raft. The Turkish Coast Guard eventually rescued the migrants. Officials from the European Commission in Brussels said they were concerned by the footage and called on Greece to, quote, fully respect obligations under the EU asylum rules and international law, including ensuring access to the asylum procedure. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli security forces shot dead three Palestinians during a military raid on the Balata refugee camp in the city of Nablus earlier today. A spokesperson for the Palestinian Authority described the raid as a war crime. Hundreds of Israeli soldiers stormed the refugee camp, demolishing several homes with bulldozers and firing live ammunition and tear gas at residents. Hundreds of people gathered at the men's funeral after the raid. Meanwhile, Israel's far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, entered the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem Sunday, declaring Israel in charge of the sacred site. The mosque has been repeatedly targeted with escalating Israeli violence. It must be said, police and combat soldiers here are doing a wonderful job and again prove who is the landlord of Jerusalem. All of Hamas' threats will not help. We are the landlords of Jerusalem and all of the land of Israel. Sudan's army and the paramilitary rapid support forces have agreed to a seven-day ceasefire starting today in a deal mediated by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. The warring parties pledged to stop occupying new areas, to allow aid workers to operate safely, and to ensure the safety of civilians and essential infrastructure. Last week, Jordan said its embassy in Khartoum was vandalized, while Kuwait said the residence of an embassy official was also stormed and ransacked. The U.N. said Friday over a million people have been displaced since fighting broke out. Out on April 15th, hundreds have been killed. Bahrain plans to restore diplomatic relations with Lebanon after severing ties in the fall of 2021, following critical comments made by a Lebanese minister of the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Saudi Arabia and its Gulf allies withdrew their diplomats from Lebanon in response. It's the latest move by Arab nations to resolve disputes and strengthen regional ties. On Friday, Syria's President Bashar al-Assad was welcomed back to his first Arab League summit after 12 years of suspension, while at the same time protesters gathered in and around northern Syria's rebel-held Idlib to condemn condemn his reintegration into the regional body. 
The U.S. and Papua New Guinea have signed a security pact, giving American forces access to the country's airfields and ports as the U.S. seeks to counter Chinese influence and extend its own reach in the Pacific. President Biden was originally slated to attend the signing today in Papua New Guinea, but flew back to Washington after the G7 summit in Japan to resume debt limit negotiations. Secretary of State Antony Blinken filled in instead, meeting with the prime minister, James Marape. In Brazil, a prominent indigenous leader from the northern Pará state was shot in the head by two gunmen May 14th in an apparent assassination attempt. Lucio Tembe survived the assault and underwent surgery. Brazil's federal government said it's investigating whether the attack was related to conflicts with palm oil companies, which have been blamed for land-grabbing, deforestation, water contamination and violence directed at indigenous communities. The European Union has fined the parent company of Facebook and Instagram for violating privacy and data protection rules. Meta was ordered to pay 1.3 billion U.S. dollars and told to immediately halt the transfer of data collected from Facebook users in Europe to the United States unless it can be protected from surveillance. The penalty announced earlier today by Ireland's Data Protection Commission is the largest fine ever imposed by the Irish privacy watchdog. Back in the United States, Nebraska's Republican-led legislature passed a bill banning abortion after 12 weeks and gender-affirming treatment for transgender youth. Republican Governor Jim Pillen has backed the bill and said he'll sign it. At least six people were arrested Friday as protesters interrupted legislative debate at Nebraska's Capitol building in Lincoln. State Senator Megan Hunt, whose son is transgender, has joined State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh in a months-long filibuster to block the measure. She's delivered blistering rebuke of her Republican colleagues who pushed through the bill. She spoke last Wednesday. This person said that they had attempted suicide during this session in Nebraska, a trans person. And I said to them, do not let one of these trash people who I work with be the reason that you're not here. They don't matter. The potential you have for the rest of your life is so much bigger than the damage any of these trash people can do in their little four-year, eight-year term. Senator Kalthus stood up and said that trans kids are suicidal and depressed because they're trans. No, it's because of bullies like her who are trying to legislate their existence and take away their right to be viewed as fully human in our culture and society. That's Democratic State Senator from Nebraska, Megan Hunt. Newly published documents have revealed persistent and widespread violations of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act by U.S. spy agencies. On Friday, a pair of heavily redacted opinions by the FISA court were made public, showing that in recent years, the FBI misused a foreign intelligence database more than 278,000 times to surveil U.S. citizens. The NSA and CIA also carried out thousands of warrantless queries. Among those targeted were journalists, political commentators, Black Lives Matter protesters arrested after the killing of George Floyd. The data was gathered under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, which permits the mass surveillance of U.S. residents' digital communications without a warrant as long as at least one party is a foreign national. The head of the D.C. Police Intelligence Unit was indicted for warning former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio he would be arrested in connection with the 2020 burning of a Black Lives Matter banner stolen from a Washington church. Lieutenant Shane Lamond was also charged with making false statements to law enforcement. Tarrio was sentenced to five months in prison in the case. Separately, a jury convicted Tarrio and other Proud Boys of seditious conspiracy earlier this month over the January 6th Capitol insurrection. 
Here in New York, hundreds of people led a march that shut down the Brooklyn Bridge Saturday, protesting soaring rent prices and demanding elected officials address the city's worsening housing crisis. Protesters called on new legislation that would protect tenants from sudden evictions and rent hikes, as well as for the city to enact a program for rent assistance. And hundreds gathered to pay respect to slain street performer Jordan Neely at his funeral Friday at the Mount Nebo Baptist Church in Harlem. Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy. Jordan's mother was killed, and her funeral was right here. And Jordan sat right there and watched his mother funeralized, who'd been chopped up. And he'd never been the same. Jordan was not annoying someone on the train. Jordan was screaming for help. Neely's friends and family were joined by a number of prominent New York leaders, including Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mayor Eric Adams was not in attendance. He's been called out for demonizing unhoused and mentally ill New Yorkers and for his tepid response to Neely's chokehold killing by a fellow subway rider, a white ex-Marine who's since been charged with manslaughter, faces 15 years in jail. Outside, the funeral protesters continue to demand justice for Jordan Neely. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The G7 summit wrapped up Sunday in Hiroshima, Japan. Much of the summit focused on two issues, the war in Ukraine and China. President Biden announced $375 million more in military aid for Ukraine. He also pledged to begin training Ukrainian forces on flying U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets. Biden did not offer to send any F-16s, but the U.S. has lifted its opposition to allies supplying the warplanes to Ukraine. Britain and the Netherlands have announced plans to work together to help provide Ukraine F-16s. President Biden spoke Sunday. You know, in my private meeting with President Zelensky after the G7 meeting, and with his staff, I told him the United States, together with our allies and partners, is going to begin training Ukrainian pilots in fourth-generation fighter aircraft, including F-16s, to strengthen Ukraine's air force as part of a long-term commitment to Ukraine's ability to defend itself. I have a flat assurance from the from Zelensky that they will not they will not use it to go on and move into. Russian geographic territory. But wherever Russian troops are within Ukraine in the area, they would be able to do that. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who attended the G7 in Hiroshima, thanked Biden for his support. We are very thankful. I think it will give us more strong positions on the battlefield. So we are very thankful. That is a new package. I really didn't know the, the details, but I know that you gave us very big package during this year. It's more than seven billion. My appreciations. We never forget. Thank you. While in Hiroshima, President Biden and other world leaders paid tribute to the victims of the world's first nuclear attack, the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, laying wreaths at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial and planting a tree. But President Biden did not issue an apology for the attack. A group of anti-nuclear activists rallied on the streets. 
Japan and the United States are trying to conduct a war of aggression on China. I am protesting because I absolutely cannot accept the fact that they are in Hiroshima, a place where an atomic bomb was dropped, trying to hold a meeting to start a nuclear war. I'm absolutely against the war. I'm against using nuclear weapons. That is why I'm here. This summit is being held to prepare for a nuclear war, so we, the union, need to do whatever we can to protest against it. We go now to Hiroshima, where we're joined by Setsuko Thurlow, who survived the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima in 1945 that killed about 140,000 people. She's devoted her life to nuclear disarmament and the ban treaty process. In 2017, she was chosen to accept the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. She's joining us on the phone from Hiroshima. It's great to have you back with us at Suko Thurlow. If you can respond to the G7 meeting and the outcome this weekend held in Hiroshima, where you are. Well, I came to Hiroshima from Canada, where I live. I wanted to be part of this whole excitement that the world leaders are coming to Hiroshima and to discuss the nuclear disarmament. And the people here are so excited, so happy to have the opportunity to to give them the to give the leaders the opportunity to be with. Uh, to be in the center of the calamity and catastrophe and and to uh, have a profound encounter themselves with the meaning of the dawn of the nuclear age. And people had a great uh, anticipation and excitement. They prepared for this with all kinds of uh, recommendations to the leaders. But somehow, uh, their wishes were not fully listened. Uh, to put it bluntly, for us survivors who want nothing less than the total disarmament, total abolition of nuclear weapons. And the majority of the citizens of Japan who support uh, survivor's idea, uh, to us, it was nothing but a disaster. Uh, uh, we are feeling more than... Frustration, it's a fury, anger, and a total disappointment. Uh, Setsuko Thurlow, uh, how do you think the war can end, the war in Ukraine can end? Well, to, to me personally, you know, why we keep hearing about a more military aid and support for war uh, than hearing about the efforts being made for peaceful ceasefire at the earliest possible time. Every day, uh, many, many lives are being killed. And certainly something must be going on. Some uh, quietly, some uh, uh, efforts must be being paid 
for ceasefire. But we don't hear about them. Are they really making that effort? Do they really feel they can uh, win this out? I don't know what's their thought. All I can say is it has to stop at the earliest possible chance, no matter what. And finally, President Biden did not apologize for the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And then, Excuse of me, course, I didn't hear you. What did you uh, President say? Biden did me, not. President Biden did not apologize for the U.S. dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Then three days later on Nagasaki, um, your thoughts? Well, it's unfortunate he had the opportunity, but he didn't. Uh, this time, too, in the joint statement or communique, um, it kept criticizing uh, the Russians and Chinese or North Korea. And why do they fail to look at themselves with a critical eyes? And we don't hear anything evil which is being committed by the West. I mean, of course, as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned, I think that uh, Putin uh, should get the total condemnation. I do condemn, no matter what the reason is, uh, to be willing to kill so many human lives. And that's not acceptable. That must stop. But... Uh, well, your question was whether the president should have, um, well, my opinion is yes. The uh, United States has committed the crime against humanity, but, but uh, the United States has never acknowledged any guilt. And, uh, and well, this truth old saying, the victims of, victors write the history. The U.S. has been condemning. Um, well, Satsuko. But, yeah. Satsuko Thurlow, I want to thank you okay. very much for being with us and speaking to us from a hospital in Hiroshima. Satsuko Thurlow, we have spoken to where she lives in Canada, but came to Hiroshima for the G7 summit in Habakusha, the survivors of the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima, speaking out against nuclear war during this weekend of the meeting of the G7. Satsuko Thurlow, has devoted her life to nuclear disarmament and the uh, treaty ban process. In 2017, she was chosen to receive the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, together with its executive director, Beatrice Finn. She's worked as a social worker for decades and founded the Japanese Family Services of Metropolitan Toronto. Next up, the NAACP issues a formal travel advisory for Florida, saying the state under Governor DeSantis has become hostile to black Americans. Meanwhile, PEN America and Penguin Random House have sued Florida School Board for banning books. Stay with us. I don't mind failing in this world. I don't mind failing. In this world 
I'll stay down with the raggedy crew Cause guessing up there means stepping on you So I don't mind failing in this world I don't mind failing in this world Don't mind failing in this world Somebody else's definition I don't mind failing in this world performed by the specials This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The NAACP has issued a formal travel advisory for Florida. In an announcement Saturday, the group said Florida's hostile to black Americans under Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's expected to announce his run for the 2024 presidential nomination this week. The move comes after Florida passed the Stop Woke Act to restrict conversations about race in schools and businesses. DeSantis has also attacked the College Board's Advanced Placement African-American Studies course and on Monday signed into law a measure that blocks colleges from spending public funds on diversity, equity and inclusion. He also signed a, a slate of legislation Wednesday targeting the LGBTQ community. NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson said, in a statement, quote, let me be clear, failing to teach an accurate representation of the horrors and inequalities that black Americans have faced and continue to face is a disservice to students and a dereliction of duty to all. The NAACP was joined by the League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, and the LGBTQ rights group Equality Florida. The move comes as tourism is one of the Florida's biggest industries. Meanwhile, PEN America, the book publishing company Penguin Random House, and several other authors and parents are suing the Pensacola, Florida School Board for banning books on race and LGBTQ issues from school libraries, saying they violate the First Amendment. For more, we're beginning with Suzanne Nossel, CEO of the free expression group PEN America. Suzanne, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you explain what this lawsuit is all about? Sure. We are suing in Escambia County to challenge the removal of books from classroom and school libraries. There are uh, well over 100 books that have been put under review and taken off classroom shelves for protracted periods while review processes are underway. Uh, that's in contravention of the best practice guidelines that the American Library Association and others say you should follow National Coalition Against Censorship, whereby books, if there's an objection, should remain on the shelves while those objections are adjudicated. And then there are more than 10 books that have been banned entirely. And this effort disproportionately targets books by and about authors of color, LGBTQ narratives. And so we're bringing a challenge under both the First and the 14th Amendments to the Constitution, the First Amendment, because these bans and removals violate children's right to read. And the 14th Amendment, because they raise equality concerns when books are targeted based on the stories told, who's telling the stories, what uh, the color or the sexual orientation of the characters, that violates our protections for equality in education. And so we're asking the school board to put these books back on the shelves and the, the court to vindicate children's right to read. 
Can you explain really what this Stop Woke Act says and how it allows for banned books? How specific is it? Or is it that the vagueness is what is so threatening? It's really the vagueness. I mean, this idea that teachings that could create racial tension or make people feel guilty on the basis of their racial identity are prohibited, raise all kinds of questions for teachers and librarians about what books might be construed to fall afoul of those restrictions. If a kid reads a book and they ask a question that demands an answer that could touch upon some of those sensitive topics, does the teacher risk being disciplined? Do they risk a complaint from a parent that could run all the way up the chain? And that that's really the way censorship works deliberately. Uh, vague laws that don't just pinpoint what specifically is out of bounds, but rather cast a broad chill, uh, a pall on education. It's, it's teaching our children that there are ideas and books that are so dangerous that they ought to be off limits, which runs counter to the very role and purpose of public schools in a democracy to be an incubator for citizenship, where you learn how to engage with all sorts of people, all sorts of ideas. Um, from your press release in Escambia County, nearly 200 books have been challenged. Ten books have been removed by the school board. Five books were removed by district committees. 139 books remain restricted, requiring parental permission. You also write, children in a democracy must not be taught that books are dangerous. Talk more about the specific books that are banned and how exactly you plan to get these books back on the bookshelves. Yeah, sure. Look, it's a long list of books, and it's quite shocking to see things like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye or Judy Bloom's Forever. You know, that's a book that I grew up with that, yes, was a little bit edgy in my time, uh, but decades have passed. Uh, these are things that have been on the shelves that have been treasured by young people uh, for long periods of time. Works of literature, Toni Morrison and Nobel laureate in literature. So to ban her books, uh, you know, the idea that they have no value, no redeeming value for children is outrageous. There are also books like Entango for Makes Three, which is a story about same-sex penguins in the Central Park Zoo who uh, that raise a baby penguin. And this is being objected to because it's seen as promoting LGBTQ lifestyles or Uncle Bobby's wedding about a child whose uncle uh, gets married to a man. And so it's a real effort to both expunge books that are seen as contravening a very traditional, rigid conception of what family life uh, ought to look like in America, and then uh, books that are construed as sexually provocative. They're being labeled uh, pornography, even though they don't bear any resemblance to the legal definition of pornography. So they're, they're, it's a painting with a very broad brush. And most of these objections have been brought by a single teacher in the school district. This is not a groundswell of parents who are raising these objections. It's a single individual. And on the basis of that, in many cases, as we outline in our complaint, the school board has overridden the considered opinion of its own review panel. So it has an empowered review panel of experts that it has designated to read books when there is an objection, to take a look and decide whether there is value for children, whether these books ought to remain in the classroom. And the pattern in Escambia that's so disturbing is 
a political override of that expert opinion. So their own designated panel is being brushed to the side at politics and ideology are ruling the day. And it's interesting that you did this with Penguin Random House, a publisher. With the major textbook publishers, when they are told to take out uh, certain things or their books will not be um, bought in a certain state, it's not like they produce books for every state. So when one state does this, uh, it changes the reading material all over the country, right? It's not also just that Ron DeSantis is going to announce for president of the United States and ha so have that national impact. But it's that the publishers have to go with the lowest common denominator so they don't have to uh, selectively publish books in each state. Well, that's right. And it's a real concern. States like Florida and Texas are large. They have huge school systems. Uh, they have market power. And so when they start to dictate what ideas need to be taken out of a history textbook, uh, you know, what episodes can be talked about? Can you talk about Black Lives Matter? Uh, can you talk about the Black Panther movement? If they say no, that has repercussions. I think that's one of the reasons why we really all, all need to be concerned about this, whether you're on the left or the right. These are fundamental free speech issues. They're ideologically motivated, state-sponsored bans and prohibition on speech, kind of exactly striking to the heart of what the First Amendment gets at. And we all have a stake in it because, as you say, a ban uh, in Florida can affect students all over the country when textbook manufacturers and book publishers become cautious. They start to worry. Who's going to object? Are these books going to be accepted? Are they going to get bought? Maybe we ought to be more cautious and circumspect about what we include here. And that, you know, for an uh, educational system that is supposed to prepare kids for a diverse society, a complex society, to be able to grapple with all sorts of ideas, uh, narratives, and people, we're really doing them a disservice. I want to bring Kelly Carter Jackson into this conversation, professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College, author of the award-winning book Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Your recent piece for CNN is titled Why Historians Like Me Are Taking on Ron DeSantis. She's just returned from St. Petersburg, Florida, where she participated in a 24-hour teach-in with other historians. Um, can you talk about why you went to Florida for this teach-in? Um, and what is happening uh, to black history, not only in Florida right now, but how it's being taught or not taught around the country? Sure. I was happy to respond to the call when Dr. Terry Scott and Yuhuru Williams organized this event through the Institute of Common Power. And they said, we're doing a 24-hour teaching. We want scholars and teachers and educators from all over the country to come to Florida to let people know that the stakes are high, that this matters, that all of our livelihoods are at risk when we think about the erasure and the marginalization that comes along with a lot of Ron DeSantis' policies. So as a historian, I know how much history matters. I know that the world that we live in today is shaped by the past, shaped by policy of the past, shaped that shaped by decisions people have made. And so it was really important for me to come 
and to teach. Uh, I, I taught at 11 p.m. at night. It went literally for 24 hours. There were people teaching at 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Um, and I took a course that I normally teach in about 12 weeks and shrunk it down to about 45 minutes and just talked about why black history matters. And I went from the great Western kingdoms of Mali and Ghana and Sangayi all the way up into the present and just talked about how meaningful African-American contributions are, that we can't discuss major events, major turning points without talking about black people, without talking about women, without talking about LGBTQ people. So it was so important to be there and I'm glad that we did it. I really wanted people to get mobilized, to get educated first, but then take that education and let it empower them to really respond and react to what DeSantis is doing. Let me ask you about black um, history classes, AP courses and what's happened there, how they have been changed and how the uh, college board has been working with, though they originally denied it, going back and forth with the Florida Department of Education to make their AP course acceptable to pres- mm-hmm. to Governor DeSantis's um, uh, Department of Education. You know, it's a real battle because oftentimes African-American history is taught like an elective. It's not taught as a core requirement. So when people see black history and when they see, you know, ethnic history as something that's tangential or something that's maybe superficial, they don't see it as a requirement for going to college. They don't see it as a requirement as part of their K through 12 education. And so when the college board put together this African-American history course, they called on scholars from all over the country and said, help us shape this curriculum, help us show why it has value and meaning and what it can add to the students who take this course, what it can add to their intellectual and emotional learning. And so I was a part of that task force. A lot of other scholars were as well. And it was really disheartening to see how uh, censored and chipped away the curriculum was. There were things like intersectionality that were not being able to be discussed. The idea of multiple oppressions and multiple intersections of one's identity. There were things about Black Lives Matter that were completely taken off the textbooks as well. And certain scholars and activists who were being marginalized or erased from the curriculum, too. And this is a problem for us because you can't teach black history without teaching these concepts, without talking about people like James Baldwin or Toni Morrison or Audre Lorde um, or Kimberly Crenshaw, for that matter. And so... These things are still at play. We're still pushing to make sure that the curriculum is being taught. But these laws require a certain kind of savviness in order to get around um, some of these restrictions. And your response to Governor DeSantis, who's supposedly announcing for president this week, saying that Florida is where woke goes to die? Yeah, this is a real problem for me. I think that, you know, I live in Massachusetts and I think people look at Florida and they're like, what are they doing there? This is crazy. But I'm concerned. I'm concerned that DeSantis will become, you know, the proverbial Simon Says, that instead of creating these, you know, wild and outrageous uh, policy infrastructures in Florida, that he will take this to the entire country and that all of the country will look like Florida. And for me, that's really disturbing because it disempowers 
scares people. It makes people afraid of things that they ought not to be afraid of. I think that DeSantis is doing a lot of fear mongering and he's stirring up strife in people where I think there are, there is not a lot of division. I think all people want their children to be educated, to have access to books to read, to be able to learn as much as they possibly can. All parents should want their children to be critical thinkers. And I think that DeSantis is really trying to push back hard against that. And I think it's going to have a backlash. I really think at the national level, it is going to backfire. And your response to Governor DeSantis's bill that um, prohibits public schools and private businesses from making people feel discomfort and guilt as we talk mm. about the um, uh, erasing of Black Lives Matter movement or even issues of slavery and reparations— even that is sort of absurd to me, because when I teach this history in my classrooms, certainly students feel a certain level of empathy, as they should when we talk about things like slavery and segregation. But most importantly, I want them to understand the causes of this, the consequences of this, how we work to not repeat this anymore. I also think that if I'm talking about my own black children, I would also want them to be taught in a way that does not make them feel small, that does not make them feel like their identity as an African-American child does not matter. So we have to find a ways to be more inclusive, not less inclusive, in talking about these histories that matter to all of us and that make America what America is. Professor Kelly Carter-Jackson, you teach Africana Studies at Wellesley College. You are featured in the new uh, Netflix documentary series called okay. African Queens, Najinga, executive produced and narrated by Jada Pinkett Smith. This is the trailer. Born into an era of darkness, a warrior, a queen destined to lead. There are no slaves in my she fearlessly defended her kingdom against European power. The king's under threat. The king is always under threat. Slavery threatened to decimate a continent. We are people born running from extinction. Rising to become a beacon of light for her people. I have nothing to lose. Which makes me dangerous. What do you want? The kind of power that will make a difference in my people's lives. Let's leave these new foreigners in no doubt who I am. Such a power move. It's such a boss move. Njinga was a mother of a nation. But she loved her country. And for that, she made great sacrifices. Jinga was the only African leader to be recognized by European rulers in power as a female king. I think of her as probably one of the greatest women warriors and women leaders this world has ever seen. Jinga percent. All hail Queen Jinga! The trailer for the Netflix documentary series, African Queens, Najinga, executive producer narrated by Jada Pinkett Smith. <clears throat> I spent last night 
watching this series, basically watching you, Professor Kelly Carter Jackson. <laughs> it's an epic series taking on everyone from mm. Portugal to the Catholic Church. Talk about its significance yeah. and the concern that maybe children in this country would not be allowed to see it. Oh, man. First of all, I was so honored to be a part of that documentary. It really is wonderful. And I think it introduces Queen Njinga to the world. I think not a lot of people are familiar with African history, let alone specific kingdoms and rulers. And to know that Queen Njinga was a warrior king, that she was fighting off the Portuguese, that she was trying to protect her people from the institution of slavery, that she was doing this as a young woman. But even until her 60s and 70s, she's riding out into horseback. You you know, like fighting against the Portuguese. It is an epic story of her life and such a major contribution to understanding slavery and the slave trade and the Atlantic world. Um, I realized that, you know, if students can't get this in Florida in their classrooms, that Netflix is something that's readily available to a lot of people. And I hope that people will sit down and they will watch this and they will grapple with this history and they will want to learn more about African history because it's so important. It is not 10 gentle, it's not superficial, um, that you have real people that are making incredible contributions to how we think about our own freedom and our own identity. And Queen Njinga does that. And the fact that she's a woman and a black woman and, you know, is so courageous, the story really is inspiring. It's it's definitely violent. It's definitely not for children, I would say. But, you know, if you have teenagers, if you have older children that you can, you know, really talk them through this, I think it's a wonderful way of looking at this history and making sense of it. Uh, well, congratulations on this series. And finally, I wanted to go to a very different topic with Suzanne Nossel. I wanted to ask you about the Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen, who resigned from your board, from the board of PEN America, after PEN America canceled a Russian writers panel at your World Voices Festival, after Ukrainian writers threatened to boycott. I know this was a very difficult issue. Um, can you explain the decision? Yeah, look, yeah, I, I need to correct you, uh, Amy. So what happened was we have this annual World Voices Festival. We had two separate panels, one of Ukrainian soldiers coming from the front who were putting together with American soldiers who are also authors. And so that was one panel. And then we had a separate panel with Russian writers, including Masha and two other Russian journalists and one historian, one journalist who we've actually brought here to New York to work on a project that was initiated by Masha and PEN America called the Russian Internet uh, Archive that archives uh, independent media from Russia that was at risk of being destroyed once Putin cracked down on independent media so aggressively after the Ukraine war started. So we had these two separate panels. The Ukrainians had told us they couldn't be on stage in an event with Russians. Once they arrived here after the long trip from Ukraine, they made clear that they were not willing or able to be in an entire festival with Russians, even though it was a separate event, separate venue, that just the very fact that they were in the same festival posed a real problem for them. And it wasn't uh, just an ethical objection, but rather a concern in terms of the visas that they had gotten that enabled them to get permission from the army to take leave and come here to the U.S. to bring their stories. So then we had a real dilemma uh, about what to do with these two events that we very much wanted to host. And we proposed to both sides, could we 
go forward, but rebrand the event. Just call it PEN America instead of PEN World Voices. Same venue, same participants, uh, same time of day. That was our proposal, one approach that we took to trying to resolve it. The Ukrainians felt that would run counter to the permission they had gotten to leave to be part of this big festival. I think the Russians felt and Masha felt that it, uh, you know, as she, uh, they put it in an article in The Atlantic that it was sort of being at a lesser table and that uh, felt uncomfortable. And so they actually made the decision to cancel and they put it, I think, poignantly saying, look, it's difficult to discuss writing in exile, which is the topic of the a panel under the best of circumstances. And these were not the best of circumstances. So, you know, with regret, we accepted that decision. And that's where things netted out. And, you know, it's unfortunate. Masha was a valued trustee of PEN America for more than nine years. We are grateful that Masha has indicated they will remain a PEN member and remain involved in this Russian uh, independent media archive project, which is so important. Yes, as the award-winning writer Masha Gessen told The Atlantic Monthly, I felt like I was being asked to tell these people that because they're Russians, they can't sit at the big table. They have to sit at the little table off to the side. Um, Suzanne Nassel, I want to thank you so much for being with us, CEO of PEN America, and Kelly Carter-Jackson, professor, historian, author, professor at Wellesley College. Next up, we go to Ecuador, where President Guillermo Lasso has dissolved parliament in order to avoid being impeached. Stay with us. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. The Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog. Opponents of Nebraska's 12-week abortion ban and ban on gender-affirming surgery for minors sang the song together in Nebraska's Capitol Rotunda. The bill passed Friday afternoon. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Ecuador, where the conservative president, Guillermo Lasso, has dissolved the opposition-led National Assembly. The move was seen as an effort to block efforts to impeach him and came as the body held its first hearing into corruption embezzlement allegations against Lasso. He used a constitutional power that's never been used in Ecuador before. It allows him to rule by decree until new elections are held, likely in August. He told The Washington Post he doesn't plan to run for president again. 
Lasso is a millionaire conservative banker elected in 2021. He was set to serve his term until 2025 and visited the White House in December. Even after the corruption allegations surfaced, Republican Senator Marco Rubio flew to Ecuador in late February to show his support for Lasso. This comes as Ecuador has faced increasing poverty and violence has soared, promoting more Ecuadorians to seek a better life in the United States. For more, we're joined in Guayaquil, Ecuador, by Andres Arauz, the Ecuadorian politician and economist. He ran for president in 2021 in a contested election against Lasso. Arauz served as director of Ecuador's central bank and then minister of knowledge and human talent under the administration of the former president, Rafael Correa. He's also senior research fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Andres Arauz. Can you talk about what's happened, the significance of Lasso dissolving the parliament? Thank you, Amy, for the invitation. Yes, uh, Lasso's dissolution of parliament is a first in our history. And unfortunately, it was a cowardly measure taken days before the impeachment process ended and which would have resulted in his uh, destitution, so him sacking uh, of power. So it was a cowardly measure that, uh, despite being that, now opens the opportunity for Ecuadorian citizens to go to the booths and to decide on the future democratically. So we see that uh, part of the decision as a, as a hopeful part that, uh, you know, of course, is going to give us uh, a chance to participate in the elections and hopefully allow progressive forces to regroup and, uh, you know, in a pretty quick uh, turnaround of time, have the opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, enlightened, <laughs> have an enlightened uh, position and uh, get together a broad coalition uh, just enough to, to win. Uh, however, this dissolution uh, of parliament also brings about risks because uh, Lasso's uh, measure allows him to rule by decree, to issue uh, laws by decree uh, with a filter from the constitutional court. Uh, Lasso has already mentioned that he plans to use this power to roll back uh, labor laws, to privatize the key state-owned assets like oil industry, electricity, utility systems, uh, telecommunications, strategic uh, sectors such as uh, uh, those. And uh, also has a, a promise to issue a decree which creates uh, or converts Ecuador into what's called a, uh, a tax haven, right? A financial sector free zone is what he has called it. Can you talk about Lasso immediately deploying police forces uh, to the streets uh, while Ecuador's chief of the Joint Command of the Armed Forces told Ecuadorian citizens Lasso's decision was constitutional, should be respected? He threatened those planning protests, saying this country will not accept any attempt to disrupt the constitutional order and democracy through violence. Yeah, well, Lasso, um, even before the decree was issued and, and published in, in the official gazette, uh, Lasso sent the military to uh, parliament and prevented anybody from getting into parliament, literally cut all cables that uh, joined parliament with the rest of society. There is no electricity in parliament, no phone connections, no internet connections, no fiber optic whatsoever. And uh, Lasso fired everybody within the parliament, even, you know, uh, janitors and employees that would uh, have to, you know, keep and give maintenance to the institution. Uh, and, of course, he did that with the support and full support of the military. He ordered the military, 
I'm not talking about the Minister of Defense. I'm talking about the actual military commanders to issue a statement together saying that the decree was constitutional even before the constitutional court had had the chance to say that that was so. So, of course, uh, it's called a fait accompli, right? Once uh, he uses the military, uh, you could expect very little difference from the actual courts. So, unfortunately, that was a, a, an authoritarian measure taken by, by Lasso. And now uh, the democracy is also at risk because together with the military, on the same day of the dissolution of parliament, he used the prosecutor general to sack three out of the five members of the Judicial Administrative Council and started actions to uh, also remove from their positions the Citizens Participation Council, which in Ecuador has a, a very important role, which is designate the authorities for the Electoral Commission. So uh, we are a bit scared in Ecuador that uh, Lasso might uh, use this for the force and the, and the prosecutor general to remove uh, uh, opposition uh, politicians uh, from power and from key posts. So uh, can you address two things? Many human rights activists are deeply concerned that um, this power to govern by decree could open the door for even more human rights um, violations. For example, using terrorism laws to target indigenous groups um, that might oppose him. And what do you anticipate will happen in the next 90 days before the snap elections that now apparently Lasso says he will not run for president in? Are you planning to run for president in these August elections? And how are um, people preparing for this? Well, these snap elections definitely take everyone by surprise. Uh, political parties are trying to quickly organize themselves into coalitions. Uh, what I have said is that more important than my name or than anybody's name, we need to make sure we have a broad coalition. In 2021, uh, we lost because we weren't able to attract, you know, around 20, 30 percent of the populations in the Ecuadorian highlands that voted a no vote. So they spoiled their vote. We need that to actually become a proactive vote in, in favor of democracy, in favor of opportunities, in favor of progressive agenda. And that's what I'm focusing my energies on now. Uh, obviously, derived from that process, there's political leadership that's being built, and we'll see whether uh, that uh, coalition decides on, on my name as a, a possibility. However, I'm willing to support uh, anyone that comes out of that uh, historic process. Uh, there are threats, and we're not so sure that this will be a swift uh, electoral process. Uh, we see that uh, Lasso has uh, leaned on, on uh, the military, on the judicial, uh, to try to pressure uh, different authorities. And uh, we see a lot of uh, uh, negative uh, signs uh, with respect to the possibility of perhaps putting a lot of, uh, uh, you know, Lasso dragging his feet with regards to uh, the budget for the electoral process, for example, and stuff like that that may complicate the electoral process. I mentioned that uh, Senator Rubio um, was supporting Lasso. Also, the Biden administration has supported him, uh, despite the accusations of corruption. Uh, Lasso is very wealthy. Much of that wealth stored in U.S. trusts, LLCs. Is that correct? How does this work? And what are you calling on the Biden administration? How to recognize um, this president who has dissolved? Of the National Assembly? Well, we see that uh, the U.S. has uh, given a lot of support to Lasso, the person, 
not Ecuador the country, not the Ecuadorian people. During Lasso's government, for example, most of the vaccines that were provided to Ecuadorian's population actually came from China. Lasso asked the U.S. to sign a free trade agreement, and that didn't happen. He actually signed a free trade agreement with, with China. So what we see is a U.S. policy directed uh, uh, only basically on the security sphere by sending plenty of intelligence officials and equipment now operating even from the Galapagos Islands, while the Ecuadorian people have not received any benefits in terms of the treatment of Ecuadorian migrants uh, in the U.S. or folk-wide scholarships or better trade opportunities and so on. And unfortunately, what we see is the uh, part of the Biden administration, and especially certain high-ranking senators in the U.S., supporting Lasso personally. Lasso has immense wealth of probably half a billion dollars now in the U.S., stashed in trusts in, in South Dakota, also in real estate and shady properties in South Florida, uh, a certain LLC structure that, you know, doesn't, uh, uh, is not very transparent but which is, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth. And uh, we now see that uh, these uh, properties that he owns, even, you know, he owns an offshore bank in Panama as well, uh, are in violation of Ecuadorians' uh, law that prohibits uh, uh, government officials from having property in tax havens. We have to leave it there. Andres Arauz, Ecuadorian politician and economist, and we'll post a Spanish interview at democracynow.org as well. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you so much for joining us.